0: Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 4. Our sermon text for this morning is John chapter 4, verses 19 through 26. You can see it's kind of the middle of this story of the Samaritan woman that we began looking at last week, and we will finish up with next week. This week, we'll look at the the middle part, John John 4, verses 19 through 26. And before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you uh, for your mercy, uh, for your power, uh, for uh, your goodness to us. We praise you as our holy, holy, holy God. Uh, Father, we pray that you would uh, be with us now as we draw near to you, as we seek to hear from you. We pray that you would speak to us by your spirit, through your word, uh, that you would build us up, that you would conform us to the image of Jesus, that you would remind us of your grace, that we would go out from here as people who have been transformed uh, into the image of Jesus as we, as we see him in the scriptures. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 4, beginning with verse 19. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Where does God meet with people? It really is such an important question that we tend to overlook. Where does God meet with people? Does God meet with people in churches or holy spaces or synagogues or mosques? Does God meet with people in the woods or in the garden, as the old hymn puts it? Does he just meet you anywhere you feel like it? It's actually a really important question. Uh, One of my favorite songs is called uh, Fool in the Rain. Uh, It's about a guy meeting a girl, waiting in the rain for her to show up, except she never shows. He stares at the clock, his heart sinks, he wonders what happened to her promises until he realizes he's waiting in the wrong place. Where does God meet with people? Jesus and the woman at the well have been having a discussion, and uh, contrary to popular belief, it, it wasn't actually all over the map, but from Jesus' end at least, it was a focused rhetorical engagement, and the woman is picking up on it. She was following his argument and was about to get to the heart of the matter, and Jesus' argument, beginning in verse 10 really, is about the place of worship. Uh, leading up to that, we'll see a few more things as we go. We'll we'll talk about the time of true worship, which is now, the object of true worship, who is the Father, and the place of true worship in spirit and truth. First, the time of true worship now. Uh, you, you know what it's like, perhaps, when you're waiting for something, right? You you look at the clock, you anticipate what it's going to be like. If it's something bad, like getting teeth pulled, you're you're already wincing at the thought. If it's something good, like a birthday party, you are already excited with anticipation. If you have kids, you keep getting the question, is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? And maybe you're taking them on a trip and and you you might get them ready by by reading a book about where you are going or asking them what they most want to see. Uh, You're helping them anticipate and enter in already. By feeding their imagination. And then finally the time comes and you can answer, okay, now, now it's time, yes. Well, Jesus has revealed his divine knowledge to this woman. He asked her to go get her husband. She said she didn't have a husband. Jesus commended her for her honesty and then proceeds to show her that that he knows who she is uh, to the core. And she responds by saying, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. And that's good. That's a good response. She may even be saying more than we realize it. The the Samaritans did not acknowledge any prophets after Moses. But they did believe in Deuteronomy 18.15, which says that one day a prophet like Moses would come. And so perhaps she is already realizing that there is more to Jesus than meets the eye. And then she asks a question. Now, many people believe that she is here evading the topic of her husband, but I actually don't think that's the case at all. You see, a, 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 Jesus is a Jewish man, and he has offered her, a Samaritan woman, the gift of God, according to verse 10. And at first, she, she clearly doesn't get it. He talks about living water, and she wants some, so she doesn't have to keep trekking out to this well every day. But now she recognizes that Jesus is a prophet, a Jewish prophet, But how can a Jewish prophet offer her anything? I I mean, he's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. Their religions suffer from a fundamental divide. And so her question, once she realizes that he is a prophet, is completely logical. How can you, a Jewish prophet, offer me, a Samaritan woman, God's gift of living water? If I'm going to to receive this living water, first we have to deal with this centuries-long division. And so she dives in, in verse 20, and she says this, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. See, the Jewish people, in obedience to God, had set up the temple in Jerusalem. Centuries later, the Samaritan people went into exile, and the Assyrians brought other peoples to Samaria, and the Samaritan religion was born. They sought to keep the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, but they rejected the rest of Scripture. And they switched things up just enough, such as building the temple on Mount Gerizim. Uh, This is the mountain that this woman is talking about when she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And while that temple had been destroyed 130 years or so earlier, the Samaritan people continued to consider it the holiest place on earth, And, in fact, they continue to worship there to this day in 2022. And Jesus' response to this woman is interesting. He says in verse 21, "Uh, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, uh, we'll talk about the, the places in a moment, neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But first, notice the time. Jesus says, the hour is coming. Jesus tells the woman, a change is about to take place. And he says this again in verse 23. He says, the hour is coming and is now here. And this is important to notice because often people misunderstand Jesus' words here. Uh, They think that Jesus is arguing against formal worship or that he is arguing against empty ritual. Now, Uh, Jesus is not for empty ritual, but his argument here is not directed toward formalism. He is not saying temple worship is bad, but I've got a better way to worship. The seed isn't bad because the tree is better. Both are important in their time. And Jesus is not coming to replace something bad with something good. He is coming to bring something immature to maturity, something partial to fullness, something anticipated to fruition. The worship that Jesus would bring is something that the temple anticipated the whole time, but is now here. And Jesus' argument, right, is is historical. God met with his people in one way in the past, but from now on, God is doing something new. The hour is coming and is now here. What the temple only anticipated would now be here in fullness. often because we come to Scripture asking the question, what does it mean for me, which is not a bad question, of course, but often because we come with that question in mind, we miss what is really going on. We seek to apply every word as if it was the same then as it is today. But Jesus is talking in a specific time, a time when God was in the middle of doing something radically new. Because Jesus had come, nothing would ever be the same again. And so today we couldn't say the hour is coming in the same sense that Jesus speaks of, but simply the hour had come and has come and is come and is now here, which means now, since that time, in some new way, true worship is possible. This is similar to Paul's words quoting the Old Testament when he says, Now is the favorable time, today is the day of salvation. Because of the coming of Christ, we can worship God in a way previously unknown. Okay, what does that mean? So first, the time of true worship is now. Second, the object of true worship, the Father. Uh, This, of course, is what has stayed the same. Uh, In all legitimate worship, the object of worship is God. Uh, Jesus says in verse 23, He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. See, God the Father is the the object of worship. And there are two things that we can note here uh, that are said about the Father. First is the centrality of the Father to our worship. As Christians, we worship a triune God. We worship the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But, of course, we are limited and fallible, and it's hard for us to even conceive of the triune God, much less worship Him in His triunity. And, and often what happens is one group or another focuses on one person of the Trinity or another. And so charismatics focus on the Holy Spirit, and legalists may focus on a skewed sense of the Father. And our temptation, I think, uh, perhaps as, as good gospel-centered people, is to focus on the Son, to focus on the work of Christ. But these are all mistaken, because if we think about worship rightly, all three persons are involved. Because of the work of Christ, who was sent by the Father, we draw near through the Spirit to God the Father. This is the emphasis of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is our great high priest who enables us to come into the Father's presence. Jesus came that we might worship the Father. Now, this talk of father bothers some people, and, and understandably to some degree, because what they, the people will say things like, well, what if I had a bad father, or what if I had an abusive father, or what if I had an absent father? How can I even talk about God as my father with that in the background? And, and one answer to that question is this, you know what a good father should be. Uh, you may know that because you had a good father, though he was not perfect, You may know it because you had a terrible father and you wished that he were different. But there was a father that your heart longed for, a father that was good and life-giving and present, and it is that image of a good father that allows you to say that your father was bad. Bad compared to what? Bad compared to the good father, the good father. We draw near to the good father. And this text tells us something else about the father. The father is seeking people to worship him. The father is on the move. He is active. He is seeking. He is looking. He is searching. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 19.10, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. It was no accident that Jesus ended up at that well on that day at that hour to meet that woman. God desires communion with his people. God wants to meet with you. You know, sometimes Calvinism gets a bad rap as if God is up in heaven, arms crossed, grumpy-faced, scowling, just waiting for people to mess up. As if he delights in judgment. But nothing could be further from the biblical picture. God desires to meet with his people. He wants to draw them near. He made the Garden of Eden for just that purpose. When sin broke that arrangement, God made a tabernacle and later a temple so that he could dwell in Israel's midst. But they rebelled and the temple was destroyed. And now God was doing something even better. Something new had come. The father was seeking true worshipers. The image Jesus gives us is of the the, the prodigal father. Right? His selfish son goes off and squanders his money. He eventually returns in poverty. And what is the father doing when the son returns? He is seeking his son. How do we know that? Well, first, that parable is the third of three. You may remember. In the first parable, the shepherd seeks the lost sheep. In the second, the woman seeks the lost coin. And in the third, the father seeks the lost son. And when the son returns, we read in Luke fifteen twenty. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. How could he see him a long way off? Because he was looking. And the moment he saw him, he ran. The father is seeking his lost sheep, his priceless people, his wayward children. This is the one whom we worship, God the Father, the one who is seeking us, pursuing us, desiring communion with men and women like you and me. So the time of true worship is now, the object of true worship is the seeking Father. And this brings us to what this passage is known for, worship in spirit and truth, which I am calling the place of true worship. When Jesus says the hour is coming, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, he does go on to to take sides in the worship wars between Jews and Samaritans. He says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, "Eh, it doesn't really matter which of us is right. Uh, God's going to change all that anyway. Let's just move on. He says, salvation is from the Jews. Why say that? Uh, Is it just kind of a dig, right? Does, Does he just have to prove his point before moving on? Does he need her to know that he is on the winning side after all? He's right. She's wrong. The end. Well, if you know anything about Jesus, you know that's not him. This is actually central to his point. Salvation is from the Jews because Jesus is from the Jews. And Jesus has come to bring salvation. God promised to send a redeemer through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David. And God has done just that in the person of Jesus. But Jesus goes on in verse 23 to say this, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. I want us to think about two questions here. First, what does spirit and truth even mean? What does it mean that they worship in spirit and truth? And then what does spirit and truth worship look like? So first, what does spirit and truth mean? I don't know if you've ever heard anyone talk about spirit and truth worship before, but I think we often get it wrong. Uh, We say things like spirit means internal versus external. The temple was external worship. Jesus wants us to worship from the heart. Now, I think Jesus does want us to worship from the heart, but that is just not what this is talking about. And heart level, internal worship still must be expressed externally. So you can't juxtapose the two. Or we say worship in truth is worshiping according to the scriptures. And again, I think Jesus does want us to worship according to the scriptures. But that's just not what Jesus is saying here. The gospel of John is geared toward the coming reality. The gospels are are transitional books. God had been working in Israel for generations, making promises, meeting at the temple, rebuking disobedience. But something new was about to happen. Jesus had come and everything was about to change. John talks about that in terms of the Spirit. In John 1.33, he says Jesus was going to baptize with the Spirit. In John 3.5, he says you must be born of the Spirit. In John 7.37-39, Jesus promises to send the Spirit about whom, John says, those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And then in John 14 through 16, Jesus repeatedly comes back to the coming Spirit's work. And in John 20, Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Spirit. You see, the Spirit was coming and everything was going to change. Now, we need to be careful Uh, When we think about this, it's not that the Spirit didn't exist before now. He was there at creation. He is God from eternity. It's not that the Spirit wasn't at work in God's people before now. The Spirit was given to those who built the temple. He came on prophets and priests and kings to equip them for their work. In David's prayer of repentance, he prayed, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. But the Spirit was about to come to a degree and in a fullness that was previously unknown. Worship must be In the spirit. What about the word truth? Again, we need to think about John's gospel. The word true can mean a couple of things. It can mean, and normally we use it to mean true versus false. But that's not the exclusive or even the primary way it is used in John's gospel. What does the word true mean when we read that Jesus is the true light and the true bread, true food and true drink and the true vine? It doesn't mean that every other light is false, or that the bread in the wilderness was not actual bread. It means that those things, as real and as concrete as they were, pointed forward to something more real. The the theological word that we sometimes use for this is, is eschatological, meaning Jesus was bringing a reality that was not known previously, He was bringing eschatological reality, that which lasts instead of that which fades. Lights go out, bread gets moldy, vines wither, but Jesus is the true light, the light of the world, the true bread, the bread of life, the true vine in whom we bear fruit. Jesus is not just real. He's he's really real, right? He is that which will last. He brings that which will last. And think about Old Testament worship, the the sacrifices were temporary, but Jesus is what they pointed to, he's the true sacrifice. The priesthood was temporary, but Jesus is what they pointed to, he's the true priest. The temple was temporary, but Jesus is what it pointed to, the true temple. Jesus is the substance of which Old Testament worship was a good but fading picture, So worship in spirit and truth is worship in the Holy Spirit and worship in Christ, the substance and reality. And so by the spirit and in Christ, uh, worship in spirit and truth is participation in the, the coming realities which Christ has brought into the present. No longer would God's people worship in the old way of types and signs and symbols, but from now on they would worship in the coming reality in the spirit and in truth. Okay, but what does that all mean? Uh, What does spirit and truth worship look like? Uh, There's something fascinating about Jesus' interaction with this woman. Uh, it, it, It looks like the topic changes multiple times. But in reality, Jesus is still on his first point. Last week, we looked at verse 10 and talked about living water. And in the Old Testament, Jeremiah rebukes the Jews for forsaking the Father, the fountain of living water, and hewing out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. But water language is worship and temple language. Think about it. In the Garden of Eden, where God first dwelt with his people, there were rivers flowing out of Eden, watering the garden. Then comes the book of Ezekiel. And at the end of Ezekiel, there is a vision of a river flowing from the temple, flowing from the most holy place, a river which practically fills the earth, bringing life to flora and fauna everywhere it goes. In Revelation, John sees a river flowing from God's throne in the, in the middle of the temple city, the New Jerusalem. What does that imagery mean? When we dwell with the Father, he is for us a source of life. He is for us rivers of living water. When John 7, Jesus will stand up in the temple and say, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. See, God dwelt with his people as living water in the Garden of Eden. God dwelt with his people as living water in the temple. And God was about to dwell in his people as living water because they are the true temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, this is why worship is neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem because the temple is no longer localized in Israel, in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion. No, we are the temple of the Spirit. As such, we have entered into true worship. We are not covered by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the true blood, the blood of the true sacrifice, Jesus. We do not come to the temple made with hands, but as the writer of Hebrews puts it, to the true temple made without hands. In Christ, the true priest, we draw near to the Father in heaven. How in heaven? How can we worship in heaven? Well, by the Spirit. Verse 24 tells us that God is Spirit, and Jesus is talking about the nature of God. He doesn't have a body like you and me. He is not a corporeal being. He doesn't have flesh and blood as you and I have. He is the Heavenly Father. How can we draw near to such a spiritual being only through His Spirit being in us? We can draw near to Him because He has drawn near to us. Through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom Christ was about to send in fullness. And so, worship in Spirit and truth means worship in the Spirit, worship which, in some way, which is uh, in some spiritual yet real way, participates in the eternal things that Christ was bringing. What it means practically is that God is ready to meet with his people anytime, anywhere, because the Spirit of Jesus is present all the time and everywhere. We don't have to go to a temple. You know, for the first 14 years of our life as a church, we met in the YMCA. Now we have a church building for which we're very thankful, but God is not any more present here than he was there. Jesus said, where two or three have gathered in my name, there he is among us. Why? How? By his spirit. Now the caricature of this is, is disembodied worship. But spirit doesn't mean disembodied, right? We still worship in our bodies, and so through bodily means, singing with our tongues, hearing with our ears, lifting our hands, bowing our knees, sitting, standing in our bodies. Again, Jesus is not speaking against formalism here. He is speaking in a very specific, to a very specific question of where do we worship? Is there a specific place about which we must worship? Now, now we, we don't think about that question anymore nowadays, but it was an important question because for 1,500 years or so, God's people had worshipped in the tabernacle and later in, Jeru- in the temple in Jerusalem. God called his people to worship in a specific place. Deuteronomy 12, David read it earlier. Uh, Part of it says, you shall not worship the Lord your God as the nations did, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes to put his name there and make his habitation there. There you shall go. What has changed from Deuteronomy 12 to today? God still calls us to go where he has placed his name. But the place where God has put his name and made his his habitation has changed. God has come in the person of Jesus. He has come as God incarnate in the flesh. Jesus tabernacled among us as the true temple. God put his name on him and gave him the name that is above every name. Because Jesus Christ is Lord. And we still gather as physical people in a physical place and do physical things. But we gather in the name of Christ. And where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is among among them. Jesus is not rejecting embodied worship, but localized worship. The idea that God meets with us in one place. An idea that was true in the Old Testament. Jesus came not just to change our minds about worship, but to change the reality. One danger here is we often give lip service to the necessity of the spirit, but then we ignore him as a person. We need to pray for the Spirit's presence in our midst as we draw near in the name of Jesus. And when we gather for worship, when we gather in Jesus' name, we come not just to a building, but through the Spirit of Christ, we draw near to the Father in heaven. We come to the true temple made without hands, regardless of geography or gender, ethnicity or culture, irrespective of past moral failure or what crazy journey we took to get here. Our gracious Father is seeking people to worship him to draw near in the name of Jesus, and by the Spirit to find their joy and satisfaction in him. The time of true worship is now. The object of true worship is the Father through the Spirit because of the work of Christ, and the place of true worship is in spirit and truth. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would draw us near by your Spirit on account of the work of Jesus. We pray that you would do that now and continually, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.